0: Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. In 1951, 25 year old William F. Buckley Jr. published his first of many books. In the book titled God and Man at Yale The Superstitions of American Freedom, Buckley critiqued his alma mater for what he saw as indoctrination of students into the ideas of liberalism and socialism with an enforced hostility to religion. God and Man at Yale put Buckley on the map of American conservatism and within two years he was the inaugural president of the Intercollegiate Society of Individualists or ISI. The ISI, backed by the deep pockets of the William Volcker Fund, led programs on college campuses to spread traditionally conservative ideals. In 1960, Buckley, who had by then founded the conservative magazine National Review, invited a group of around 100 Young Conservatives to his home in Sharon, Connecticut, with a plan to form an organization with a more activist bent than the intellectual ISI. The resulting organization was called Young Americans for Freedom, or YAF. On september eleventh, nineteen sixty, the group adopted a statement written there by another Yale alumna, M. Stanton Evans. The Sharon statement began, In this time of moral and political crises, it is the responsibility of the youth of America to affirm certain eternal truths. We, as young conservatives, believe that foremost among the transcendent values is the individual's use of his God-given free will, whence derives his right to be free from restrictions of arbitrary force, that liberty is indivisible, and that political freedom cannot long exist without economic freedom, The statement continued with another 12 principles about the role of government and the market economy and asserting that international communism was, quote, the greatest single threat to these liberties, unquote. IAF grew quickly, and by March 1962, over 18,000 people attended a rally at Madison Square Garden in New York City, sponsored by YAF. At a time when there were conservative elements in both major political parties, YAF was nonpartisan, but members of YAF played a major role in the nomination of arch conservative Barry Goldwater as the Republican candidate for president in 1964. By the late 1960s, college campuses had become sites of unrest by the left, as students led frequent protests against the increasingly unpopular Vietnam War especially after changes to the military draft in July 1969 removed the deferment for currently enrolled college students. Anti-war sentiments weren't the only cause that the student left championed. There was also a progressive push for diversification of both the student and faculty populations and for the establishment of Black Studies, Gender Studies, and other ethnic studies programs. YAF, ISI, and the College Republicans encouraged conservative students to fight back rhetorically, arming them with the classics of conservative thought, including Buckley's God and Man at Yale, along with such books as The Conscience of a Conservative by Goldwater, The Conservative Mind by Russell Kirk, and Capitalism and Freedom by Milton Friedman. They did not stop at reading and classroom debates, however. What most united the various groups of campus conservatives was opposition to the left. So one tactic they used was to organize counter-protests against new left protests. YAF was never as large as it claimed, in reality, probably only fifteen to 20,000 students nationwide. But they coordinated their efforts with other groups who opposed the New Left, like athletes and members of the ROTC. In order to appear more popular and representative of students than they were, college conservatives would often create additional clubs with new names whose membership entirely overlapped with YAF, or with college Republicans. On some campuses, college conservatives, who were budding politicians, would take over the student government. Jeff Sessions, who would later be a United States senator and then U.S. Attorney General, began his political career as a leader of the college Republicans And then president of the student body at the all white Huntingdon College in Montgomery, Alabama, from which he graduated with a BA in history in 1969. Conservative college activists had avoided physical violence, but that changed during a series of protests at Columbia University in the spring of 1968. Left wing students at Columbia were, like students at a number of other campuses, protesting their university's involvement in research on weapons of war. At the same time, they were also joining community members in protesting a plan by the administration of Columbia University to build a student gym that would displace local Black residents from the neighborhood. At Columbia, the conservative counter-protesters dressed in suits, including future U.S. Attorney General William Barr, put their bodies on the line, surrounding a library where Students for a Democratic Society, SDS, was staging a sit-in. The goal of the conservatives was to block anyone from delivering food and supplies to the liberal protesters. Eventually, New York City police officers ended the demonstration. The college right pursued another tactic at Columbia that they then used at other universities. The use of lawsuits, or the threat of lawsuits, to demand that campuses remain open despite strikes and protests by liberal students. YAF... now called Young America's Foundation, still operates today. On its website, it claims to be the leading organization for young conservatives, with a mission to ensure, that increasing numbers of young Americans understand and are inspired by the ideas of individual freedom, a strong national defense, free enterprise, and traditional values, unquote. ISI, now called the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, is also still running strong, with the name to, quote, cultivate a vibrant community of students, faculty, and alumni, and teach foundational principles that are rarely taught in the classroom. The core ideas behind the free market, the American Founding, and Western Civilization. Unquote. ISI claims among its alumni Supreme Court Justices Neil Gorsuch and Samuel Alito, and PayPal co founder Peter Thiel. Joining me now to discuss the college right in more detail is doctor Lauren Lasab Shepherd. Author of Resistance from the Right. Conservatives and the Campus Wars in Modern America. Now let's all join in together and sing an old song which I think you all know. I'll repeat the words: you sing after me. Now all the wheat farmers, now all the wheat farmers, when they cast their votes, when they cast their votes want controls. Said we don't want control. We'll row our own boats. We'll hoe our own boats. Now this shocked the liberals. They just can't understand. They just can't understand. That the American farmer. That the American farmer. Wants to run his own land. Wants to run his own land. Now you know in Cook County. Now you know in Cook County. We'll go right on board. Even after they're dead. Even after dead. <laughs> and that's part of the reason. And it's part of the reason. They were able to win. They were able to win. But this time we'll be watching. But this time we'll be watching. It won't happen again. It'll happen. Hi Lauren. Thanks so much for joining me today. Hi, thank you. It's great to be here. Yes so I am really interested to hear how how you came to be writing about this topic and why you focused in on 1967 to 1970 Oh sure okay so this uh book
1: started as my dissertation and it came about actually as a paper I was taking a history of higher education course and we were you know covering the 60s and I'm hearing about all of the protest, like for peace and for making the curriculum more diverse and more representative. And I I knew that um, outside of higher ed in the K-12 sphere, there's this well-documented massive white resistance, right, to integration and things like that. So I was wondering, like, what did that look like on the college campus? Where is this? It's not in the text. And I had a hunch that that didn't mean it wasn't there. And so, you know, I I tried to read as wide as widely as I could, and I I realized this. Some of this is kind of included in some studies, but it's really kind of peripheral. There wasn't a focus study on the backlash from students themselves, especially white students, or students who were maybe veterans of the Vietnam War who had come back, or students who were in ROTC and they were training to become officers to to go to Southeast Asia and fight. And another layer of context here, this was 2016. So we were nearing the presidential election. This is the fall semester. So like campaigns at, at the height of its point. And I, I knew that Trump in 68 would have been at Fordham. And so I was like, where's, where is Donald Trump, the college student in the record? And I couldn't find him anywhere. I mean, he didn't really seem to play any sort of role in the, um, the campus wars, but. I mean, I was I was just thinking like there there has to be there've gotta be other figures, right, of, of his generation that and of course I, I came to found, find out that there were lots of people that we recognize in politics today, right? Newt Gingrich was a part of all of this, William Barr, Jeff Sessions, both attorneys general. And so there's all of these names that I'm coming across. And I'm like, this I have to write about this. This this has to this has to be part of my dissertation. So a
0: paper turned into a dissertation turned into a book. So, tell me a little bit about the sources that you used, and I know you did some oral histories for this. So, can you talk a little bit about that and your your approach to to doing this work?
1: Yes. So, starting in the archives was kind of difficult for me. So, as a grad student, I didn't have lots of funding, and I knew that Young Americans for Freedom's papers were kind of spread throughout the country. I mean, there's some of their papers are, um, in Yale Sterling Library and a, the William F. Buckley Jr. collection. There's some, some other papers, um, in the Hoover Institution. Um, also the college Republican papers are there, um, attached to Stanford. So both coasts. And I was based in Mississippi and without a lot of money to get there, you know, I, I had to do a lot of this online. And in fact, after the dissertation, I had to when I did actually have money because I had a job, I was able to finance my own travel to these places to to get some of the archival sources. So without being able to do that as a grad student, I had to rely heavily on oral interviews and also very, very generous archivists who are willing to scan things uh, for me and email them to me. So that was really helpful. But yeah, in terms of things I was looking for, I started the project out just looking for Young Americans for Freedom, which is one of the student groups who features prominently in the book. And there are a couple of others. So I was looking for YAF papers. I was looking for YAF newspapers. And when I kind of hit a wall, I thought, okay, I'll I'll reach out to these people themselves. I mean, many of them were in their 80s at the time, but they were uh, very, very willing to speak with me. Which was kind of surprising. I didn't know if they would want to talk about their, their time as college activists or not. And so, yeah, I interviewed like five dozen people who um, had been activists in the past. And so the project in some sense sort of became an ethnography because I went to these people's homes. I, you know, sat down with them. I had dinner with their wives because most of them were men and their children. I went to CPAC. I went to lots of other alumni association events where I knew I could find uh, yaffers and others. And so I conducted these oral interviews and some of them were extremely willing to share their own artifacts with me. So if they had old newspapers uh, or old college Republicans materials or old ISI, it is any sort of memorabilia that they had. They were really forthright in sharing that. And then uh, I guess another major, major source of my sources was newspapers.com found a lot of stuff through i had a subscription to um, ancestry and that gave me access to newspapers.com and so i found a lot of a lot of papers that way so i guess all of that is to say that these projects are doable on a (laughs) grad student budget
0: you just have to you have to be
1: resourceful and and think far and wide
0: Let's talk some about YAF and how it started. And you trace in the book that this this is not just some sort of sudden spontaneous <laughs> coming together mm-hmm. of, of students, that this is a really concerted effort. So can you talk some about the the founding of YAF, what, what it was, what it came together around and, and sort of what, what it became during this time period? Sure. Okay. So to begin with YAF is
1: actually even to begin with an earlier sister organization, which is Intercollegiate Studies Institute, or ISI. ISI was founded uh, in 1953, and it was designed to be. It was designed by movement conservatives, a lot of these like anti-New Dealers from the 40s and the early 50s, as a way to be like a conservative intellectual project. And so, the very first president of ISI was uh, William F. Buckley Jr. And the the first chapter was based at Yale. So anyway, ISI doesn't really do much. It's not an activist organization. It's it's much more focused on uh recruiting students, getting them really steeped in the intellectual literature on the right. And then from there they can go on to become faculty or they can do whatever it is they they want to do. That was ISI didn't really have those designs when it was first created in the 50s. So after less than a decade, only 7 years, Buckley begins looking for students that he can recruit for an activist organization. So ISI kind of represents this intellectual youth wing of post-war conservatism. YAF is the activist arm. And so it was created in 1960. Uh, it was founded in September at Buckley's estate. And the name of the conference was the Sharon Conference. It was They met in Sharon, Connecticut. And they drafted their Sharon statement. So their mission statement. And if, if you were to go to look at the Sharon statement, it's quite concise. It's, it's an easy read. It's short, one page, a couple of declarative sentences. And it's basically an anti communist document, right? You see lots of, lots of statements about, you know, wanting to protect individual liberty and freedom and, you know, fighting this communist menace overseas. Cause this is, of course, you know, we're deep into the cold war. Um, but it also has some elements of Christianity in there, too. So um, when YAF first started off, it's it's this activist organization. And then over time, you asked me earlier, why did I start this project in 67 to 70? That's because over time, YAF really, really digs its heels in into just being combative. Right. So initially, one of the things that I argue in the book is that YAF in, from sixty-seven to seventy, doesn't have its own mission anymore. Just completely band- abandons the Sharon statement, and it's more concerned about just fighting the left, whatever that means, and whoever the left is. It's a very nebulous term and concept. So they kind of lose that initial like anti-communist stance that they had. Not that it goes away completely. They always hearken back to it, but they kind of stray from their principles and, and they become more reactive and more reactionary to the peace movement and to students on campus who are asking for Black studies programs or courses, um, or even just diversifying the campus, right? I I say in the book that the the campus in 1969 is still 95% white, which is just incredible to to think back on, or diversifying the faculty, right? These are things that YAF all becomes opposed to that have nothing to do with its principles as stated in 1960. So yeah, that's the... The decade kind of development of YAF, and then of course, the organization is still around today as Young America's foundation.
0: So I'm interested in the the fault lines that kind of develop this, you know, that there's this kind of top down approach to creating things like YAF, but, but there are fault lines that develop in the 1968 Republican primary, for instance, who different groups are supporting. And then of course the the split of libertarians, which we still see that tension today, of course, in the Republican Party. So could you talk a little bit about the the way these things kind of change over time and when they're more successful at coming back together or when they're breaking apart a little bit because it's it's an uneasy coalition sometimes. Oh, extremely, yes. So in just those three years, 67 to
1: 70, you, there's this constant making and remaking of the campus, right? Like it's constantly in flux. And that's because the students themselves are are trying to do some organizing as much as they can, but they, they don't have the techniques or the skills that their elders have. And so what you see is from the post-war conservative movement. And to be very specific, what I'm talking, who I'm talking about these are writers, um, people who are at magazines like National Review, Modern Age, and and some other magazines that are kind of directing the students, also in the, the GOP, <laughs> the Republican Party as well, that are directing the students on what to do, how to organize. And so a lot of these fault lines are a product of the students themselves being maybe a little bit ideological. So we mentioned ISI earlier. ISI, when I talk about them in the book, that organization becomes like a, an intellectual training ground. It's almost like a parallel university within a university. So these students are put together in these groups to study the great books and study rhetoric, and then come up with intellectual defenses for conservatism. And then they're funded by these movement leaders who are willing to cut big checks that pays for their graduate tuition so that they'll go on to get PhDs or go to law school. Plus, they give them stipends because some of them are married and have families. So ISI is really focused on the intellectual parts. So ISI and YAF kind of brush up against each other all the time. And then there's this third group I haven't mentioned yet, but the college Republicans. So college Republicans are a partisan organization, right? They're not so, they're not concerned about working with Democrats, whereas YAF is, has Democrats on its national board, right? Southern Democrats, people like Strom Thurmond. Who, who listeners will probably recognize and, and also several others. So again, the, all three different major groups, and there are more groups, they all have different ideas about what they should be doing on campus. So you, these mentors, these older conservatives, kind of force them to get together under the least common denominator. And that is, we all don't like the left. Can't define the left, can't tell you who's in it. Well, they can not tell you who's in it. But you know, when it comes to when it comes to like the further extremes on the left, those people are easy to identify, right? Like people who are members of Students for a Democratic Society or, or students who are um, associated with like SNCC or the Du Bois clubs on campus. Those enemies are easier to identify, but even within their own ranks. So you asked about the, the fault lines with libertarians. There's a chapter, I think it's chapter seven in the book called Mickey Mouse, William Buckley's The libertarians at the 1969 uh, YAF convention are purged from the group. And this is huge. This represents like a quarter of YAF's membership, which is really significant because YAF has spent years trying to position itself as a campus majority, a campus silent majority in in the way that, you know, this is 68, 69. Nixon's just run on his campaign to represent a silent majority. So they're doing that too, but then they're purging a quarter of their members and the fight is over a couple of things. So what happens at this 69 convention, libertarians are feeling some sympathies towards the peace movement, right? They don't like the draft, especially. That's the big thing. That's the problem for them. But they also are okay with decriminalizing marijuana use. They're against police brutality because they themselves might have participated in, in some anti-war marches and had to deal with police because of that. But YAF doesn't like any of this, right? So YAF, for as much as it's trying to, to build what they call majority coalitions and get these students together, it's also becoming extremely puritanical, right? So like the line is we don't have crossover with the left. And so because there are they're kind of squishy on these issues, libertarians are purged. This actually gets violent. I go into more details in this chapter, but you know, the, the first night of the convention, everyone meets. This is in St. Louis. So they all meet under the Gateway Arch. Buckley stands up and gives this introductory speech. And then you've got the libertarians also represented with some, um, radical anarchists who are screaming like F the draft. Uh, they're booing at Buckley. They're just creating a ruckus and this not going to end well. And so there are fist fights. Kids bring the the fights back to the hotels. They're like rumbling in the hallways of the hotels. It's not good. But anyway, so the libertarians are technically purged in the summer of nineteen sixty nine. But as I say in the book, and as you alluded to just a moment ago, they're actually never really too far because the traditionalists that who make up the majority of YAF and the majority of the right even today uh, still need to borrow some of those libertarian arguments. Right? They still need those justifications because libertarian arguments. Even though they're about freedom and they're, they're, they're concerned with maximizing freedom, but what actually happens when you play them out to the fullest extent is inequality usually. And that's what the traditionalists, that inequality, that hierarchy of social order is what they want to preserve. So they borrow libertarian language while turning their nose up at people who are libertarians.
0: So you mentioned that these movement elders are are writers that they're running publications and that informs then part of the strategy of what they're mentoring instructing guiding these college groups to be doing as well. Can you talk a little bit about that media strategy, the the campus publications that are, you know, not exactly grassroots and and what that looks like?
1: Yeah. Oh, I'm so I'm glad that you said not exactly grassroots. Yeah. So I try to stress the point that this is an astroturf movement. Right? Like, of course, there are students who genuinely, you know, have sympathies towards towards conservatism, but they're so orchestrated, they're so choreographed by their mentors. So the the example that that you asked about, normally when we think of student campus publications in the '60s, we think we go straight to the New Left's underground newspapers right there. There's no oversight from administrators because they're totally underground and, you know, they're leaflets and students just kind of them around. So the student right has their own version and it's funded. I say it's underground, but a lot of times it's funded directly by the trustees themselves who are sympathetic. And in one instance, I talk about at the University of Southern California, YAF and either college Republicans or young Republicans, the other group, kind of got together and had a close relationship with some of the trustees and used trustee donations to run the whole operation. And they just coded it as, you know, alumni subscriptions. So the the administrator's name wouldn't be attached to it. But I mean, they would fund the whole print run for a semester or a year or however long they needed to. And in terms of content, so the students themselves often did pin their own editorials or they would you know, they would they would do their own investigation about whatever's going on on campus. But when they were short on copy, they could always just rip something directly, directly from their mentors, right? So College Republicans, as an organization, they had these handbooks. It, YAF also had them, but they would be an, issued annually from the national office that said, like, here are articles that have run in vop pamphlets or newsletters or whatever take them and use them keep keep this as a record and so anytime you need to borrow something uh like as an alternate fact that expression of course didn't exist back then but anytime you need some some data to back up your your convictions you can just pull from things that we've already published so yeah there's that and then national review also was really really good at working people at national review so not just buckley but Others are willing to read student drafts and comment on them and send them back. Right? I mean, they're they're truly like this is really good mentorship. I almost wish something like this existed on the left today for our students, but I I don't really know of any such organization. But yeah, I mean, they really they it's incredible the structure that they built for these students to train them to mentor them, and then of course they all go on to have long careers. All of the people I interviewed were in some way still involved in politics in their 80s.
0: So you mentioned earlier that before the the purge of libertarians, YAF has been trying to say it's a silent majority. It's trying to build up, claim it's it's popular. And it, it seems at times like that's the goal is just to say, like, look how so many people agree with us. They're just not participating, but, you know, they really agree with us. Yeah, they're studying. They're, yeah. They're studying. <laughs> yeah, they're busy studying. But at the same time, they seem to realize that it in some ways doesn't really matter how popular they are if they can get on the side of the administration or the legislators or they've got the president on their side or that sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and the ways that they're they're really able to do a lot with not that much popular support among students? Yeah. So the, the book is divided into two parts. And the whole first part is
1: about, yeah, just organizing, just trying to get its name out on campus, trying to recruit members um, to its cause, YAF yeah, ISI and College Republicans and Campus Crusade for Girls. But part two of the book, begins with sort of a lesson that the college right learned after the 1968 Columbia uh, demonstration. So if if listeners are familiar, there were two separate, well, that's around April and May, two separate campus shutdowns essentially, where students had occupied buildings. They were their grievances were over the university's involvement with the Department of Defense and its its aid to the Vietnam War, but also for this this campus expansion project, gym construction. They're trying to build a new gym gym facility uh, that encroached in the neighborhood of Harlem. So for all these reasons, there's massive shutdowns of the university that, that go on for weeks. The student right realized it doesn't have to actually like get involved and try to, I mean, they do counter protest somewhat. And the instance at Columbia actually gets really, really nasty, but they realized if they can just find who the authority figures are and align with them and amplify them, then they can claim, see, we represent the majority. We are, uh, we speak for the wants of not only all of students, but also for the trustees and for the president and for the community itself. And there's actually something to that. They never, of course, represent the majority of students, but they often do do at times represent the f- feelings or the will of s- surrounding campus communities. We see a lot of instances where like Main Street business owners are really fed up with, you know, the peace nicks on campus and the hippies who, you know, cause trouble and, and, and things like that. So YAF realizes, OK, it's not genuinely popular. It still goes on about, you know, reporting to be popular and to represent a silent majority. But it, it kind of internalizes this idea that as long as it is aligned with power, with powers that be, it has control in that way. So it can just, lie. it can just say, we represent everybody. And then look, here we are, you know, behind the scenes, having, having things done. And, and another thing I go into in the book is when YAF realizes that administrators may be, it may be that they are sympathetic with the campus left, YAF tries to force their hand. So one of the things the organization does is sue or threaten to sue several institutions they actually do sue, I think, 11. They file for a court injunction, and they're successful in a couple of them, not in most of them. George Washington University is a good example where they, they sue either the president or the trustees or maybe both, but they do get a court injunction that says, okay, you have to open the university back up. So, And all they need are small victories like that. You only need one <laughs> to, to publicize that nationally which they do. I mean, this, this small little campus group is able to write press releases and get it out there and get it into hometown newspapers. So they're, they're really in that way because they've got people who are guiding them to do so. That's another way that they seem to represent a majority. But yeah, even just the, the threat to sue administrators is often enough to make them say, you know what, maybe we need to this sit in down or compromise.
0: So let's talk a little bit about Kent State and the the massacre that happens there. My parents were there; they were uh, oh, on gosh. campus then. They watched the ROTC building burn, and they were thankfully not right in the heart of what was happening, but you know, on campus when the the shooting happened. So this is an event that I've thought a lot about, but I hadn't. I I had realized I uh, I think that the that there was larger blowback outside of colleges. That you know there were there were plenty of people who were not college students who were not so happy with students and and maybe thought that they deserved some of what happened. I hadn't thought as much about uh, college right and how they might have responded. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the response of the college right. It's it's tricky because of course these are college students who have been killed. But what? How how do they respond to that? What what is uh, their approach? Uh, it's slow. So
1: I'm sure your listeners are familiar with what happened at Kent State, but in in the aftermath of Ohio National Guard executing four students and, and farming several others who who are not actually I shouldn't even say students. They weren't all students, right? Some people were just taters uh, at this at this protest that had um, extended on for several days. So anyway, after the death of of Kent State students, there's kind of this, well, there's an, a nationwide explosion. So college campuses across the country, there are protests, sit-ins. half the campuses shut down completely because they become so violent. So the way that the student right responds at first is with silence. And that's actually the direction they're given. So David Keene, who at the at the time, I think, was if not the national director, he would be soon. But anyway, he was he was still an important force. But David Keene tells students, we just need to be quiet about this, right? <laughs> just let this unfold. It's summertime, right? Because the the massacre happens at the, the early part of May and the, the campuses are almost out for the summer anyway. And so it's like let let the summer pass. We'll we'll pick up back, you know, with our <laughs> with campus wars in <laughs> after uh Labor Day. So the direction is to be quiet, but um, not all students follow that, especially at the University of Southern California that I spend a lot of time there talking about how students responded. So one sort of gesture that administrators nationwide take is to lower flags to the campus flag, to half mass, to honor the students. But there are yaffers, young Republicans on a couple of different campuses. Tulane is another one besides USC who get in tug of wars over lifting the flag back up. Right. And so the justification from the right is that this w- this is a political gesture. We shouldn't be doing this. Right. This is an example of the administrators running amok, playing politics. And and so they can they can frame it that way to not have to deal with the issue at hand, which is that four people were killed by the state right? for for peaceful protests. We know that we know that the people who were killed. Um, We're either not participating or they were they were at distances so far that they wouldn't have been the ones throwing, you know, rocks at the National Guard. So, yeah. So, yeah, you know, it it gets combative on some chapters. But uh, again, the national direction is to just be quiet about this. Let it pass.
0: Campus wars, of course, have not gone away. That's a, a hot topic in the news. again, I, Could you talk a little bit about the importance for understanding this history that you've written about to understanding today and the the culture of of campus wars and cancel culture and all of that what what's going on today? Yeah, I mean so
1: so in a sense it's it's a little bit different so the the story that I tell is about the student left and right, so it's about students uh, today we don't really see a campus left or right. I've thought so much about this. Like who represent of course there's Turning Point USA on campuses and there's campus reform. There are some of those groups. YAF is still around. There's a young Americans for liberty, but they don't make headlines. They're not really big. And I don't know who the equivalent would be on the left. I, it's, the closest thing I can come up with is, and maybe we'll see this as the as the 24 election approaches. Maybe we'll see a new left group, but maybe some Bernie bros. Like, I, I just don't know who the left would be today. Instead, the campus wars are really GOP legislators versus the culture. <laughs> I mean, there's no one direct. In, they're not after administrators. They're not after students themselves. They They're after curricula maybe maybe that's it. I, I know in my home state of Mississippi, I'm keeping up with it really closely. Shad White, he's our state auditor who is himself a Rhodes Scholar and has a master's degree from Oxford, most elite institution in the world, saying that you know it's pointless that we have justice studies programs. It's pointless that we have arts and humanities programs. And it's just like, his master's degree is in social and economic history. So I know that he actually does understand this. He's just playing this. It's a bit, I don't know, but it it has serious consequences for our students and for faculty. But another thing, I can't be too far reaching with my conclusions because really what we see when we look at like West Virginia, for example, that's not all from the right. That's also from the center, from liberals, right? You could, you could call this neoliberalism to say, you know what? The money's just not there. These programs are not as successful. So it's just basic economics. It's just basic being responsible with our budget. We have to we have to cut what isn't working. That is not driven by conservative ideology at all. That's, I guess, considered a, a moderate or responsible approach. But, but we know that that isn't true, right? We know the importance of the humanities. And so, so, like what's happening at West Virginia is a little bit different than what's happening at, say, new college in Florida, which is ideologically driven, right? That's Chris Rufo and the whole new board of trustees, and that's one of DeSantis's projects, and I'm sure there'll be others. So I mean it's hard it's hard to draw a straight line because, again, the fight isn't between students anymore. It's legislators, it's people who control the purse strings and people who craft laws and have direct influence over higher ed policy and curricula or culture, you know, whatever they're fighting about. And it, and it doesn't look good. I don't end my book on a happy note. I don't end it on a sad note either. But I will say if listeners are trying to find something, um, a silver lining in this or something to be hopeful about, I think we've seen an incredible strike summer. People are joining unions, faculty are joining unions, grad students are joining unions. And I think that that is really, really important. It doesn't, it hasn't held A lot of success. Like uh, what we've seen at West Virginia University is not great, but in the California system, and I think New School was on strike last, the New School in New York was on strike last fall. So, I mean, I'm trying to keep an eye on all of this. I'm very hopeful that organizing uh, will help. But, you know, the most important thing uh, that we could do to stop all of this would be to get people elected to office who actually care about higher education and about. Learning and about open mindedness and, and just care about the academy and are willing to protect it and to fund it.
0: So, if listeners want to get a copy of your book so they can read for themselves this fascinating history, how can they get a copy?
1: Uh, you can find it anywhere books are sold. Uh, I can't believe I just said that. That sounds so real, so weird. Uh, you <laughs> can get it from the press website, the University of North Carolina Press carries it, also, bookshop.org. Of course, it would be great if you could buy it from your local um, bookstore. And if they don't have it, please request it. If your institution doesn't carry it, please request it. And then forget Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the places. Is there anything else you wanted to make sure we talk about? I th- I think we've covered the high points today, but I'm, I'm very happy to continue the conversation. If you want to talk more or if listeners want to talk more, y- y'all can find me. I'm still on Twitter. But also other places on the internet at Lassab, L L A S S A B E. Um, or you can send me a note
0: through my website, which is laurenlessab.com. Lauren, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I uh, am really thrilled to have learned more about i I have always been fascinated by this particular time period, and I'm really happy to have learned more about it. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. All together now. To the west. The people are saying that is best.
1: Thanks for listening to Unsung History. Please subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app. You can find the sources used for this episode in a full episode transcript at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions, corrections, praise, or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and tell everyone you know. Bye! MSW.